I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider making a donation in any amount on our website at livewireradio.org. We're an independent production funded in large part by grants, foundations, and the generosity of strangely attractive listeners such as yourselves. Once again, that's livewireradio.org, and thanks so much for listening. Hello? Yo, Corey, dude, I'm lost. Jeff, the game is starting right now. Where are you? I told you, I'm freaking lost. But I got the game on the radio. The radio? We got it up on the big screen, brother, with surround sound over here. Just hurry up and tell me how to get to your stupid house. Okay, are you near the school? What school? I'm, I'm near a church. Is the school near the church? The church? What are you doing way over there? Whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait, wait. Come on, come on. Go, go. Woo! Yeah! Wait, 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 what's going on? <laughs> what just happened? Oh, oh, yeah, go, go, yeah! Hey, Corey. Dude, did you hear that? Yeah, Ordonia has uh, hit a home run, but I heard it from you like five seconds before it came on the radio. Yeah. There's a delay or something. Dude, you just gotta get over here now. I'm freaking trying, okay? I'm, I'm near the church. What do I do? Okay, so go down to Highway 31 till yeah. you hit a stoplight. That's Houston Street. Okay. Take a left there and you go all the way down to the... Oh, no! Come on! That's bull! What? What is it? Corey, I just... Uh... <sighs> no! Oh, come on, man! Jeff, you hear that? Damn it, Corey, yeah, Mauer struck out, but quit reacting to the TV. I'm hearing what happens before it happens. Then turn your radio off. Well, if I do that, I'm really going to miss the game, all right? Just stop screaming into the phone when something big happens. Okay, go down Houston Street till you hit the school. Houston to the school, got it. At the school, take a right. Whoa, come on! I mean, uh, uh, oh. Damn it, Corey! No, dude, it wasn't the game. I, I... I just remembered that my birthday is only ten months away. Right. Son of a... Nice try, Corey. Oh, oh no, no! Ugh. Okay, this is not working. I'm, I'm turning off my radio, but you, you gotta shut up till I get there, okay? Just give me directions and don't say anything okay, else. Okay, okay. At the school, take a right at Sherman. Okay. Then I'll take you down to a roundabout, but you gotta make sure to... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, come on, baby. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Corey, come on, man. What did I just say? I, I, I'm sorry, bro. I just really like roundabouts. Uh, they're so much more efficient than American four-way stops or something. Uh, fine. Just, just tell me what happened. Oh, man, it was awesome. It was pretty incredible. It was a grand slam to the upper deck in the bottom of the ninth. I think someone's streaking the field. It's... It's... From the beautiful Mission Theater in Portland, Oregon, where that weird phone delay adds another layer of tension to all of our passive-aggressive conversations, it's Livewire! And now it's the host of Livewire, who appreciates a good phone delay. When she's ordering pizza, and all those awkward seconds add up to 30 minutes, the pizza's free! Courtney Hameister! Thanks so much for coming out, everybody. Welcome to the show. Um, I think that we've all got uh, the oil spill and the gulf on our minds right now. We're going to have Earl Blumenauer on the show later to, to talk a little bit about that, which we're excited about. Um, I don't know if you guys have read uh, the LA Times and uh, seen that Kevin Costner is going to solve the problem for us. Have you read the story? 
this is an amazing story to me. Kevin Costner has invested 15 years and $24 million. Uh, it happened after Waterworld. For whatever reason, he sort of became fascinated with this, and he actually uh, invested all this money in creating this uh, centrifugal machine that actually separates oil from water, and BP is going to actually put them into practice. They're going to they're gonna take them out and see how they work. Kevin Costner, disaster fixer. Not creator, disaster fixer. And then, and, then, and then actually in the same story, James Cameron has offered up all of his underwater vessels that he used in ti- to film Titanic to BP as well. So movie stars, TV stars are turning into like uh, the new superheroes because they're the only ones with money and they have so much money, in fact, that they invest in these ridiculous things. And so they're going to be like, whenever we have a problem, you know, oh, there's no money, there's no money for EMTs. You should call, oh, someone's been horribly disfigured. Call the Kardashians because they've been growing skin in their backyard for the last few years to use in plastic surgery. And, oh, medical marijuana? You should call Matthew McConaughey because he's not only the guy to get it. It's very alliterative, Matthew McConaughey, the medical marijuana guy. Um, And then, of course, if you have any aliens in your body, you should call uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, we've got a lot of really great stars here tonight. We've actually got a fan favorite in the house. Essayist Stacy Bolt is with us tonight. And Shelley McClendon is with us tonight. You may have seen her. She's, been, she's worked with Faces for Radio Theater many times. We'll be offering up a little tidbit from Roadhouse, the play, uh, for your listening enjoyment. And he is, he's the, we, we mentioned him before, he's the perfect guest to have on the day after National Ride Your Bike to Work Day. Representative Earl Blumenauer is with us tonight. And our musical guest, uh, some may call a supergroup, uh, it's the Baseball Project featuring Steve Wynn, Linda Pittman, Scott McCoy, and Peter Buck of R.E.M. And they'll be interviewed tonight by the author of Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life, author Steve Almond. So it's going to be a good night. Kind of a great show. First, meet the amazing members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Laura Faye Smith, our gorgeous siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, poet Scott Poole, the author of Hiding from Salesman, will be in our audience tonight. He'll be writing all throughout the show, uh, watching everything that's going on, and he will give us a poem at the end of the night that will sum up what's happened during the course of the evening. Welcome, Scott. Well, get to writing. Thanks for coming. And uh, I think uh, we, we can't possibly do our show ever without our amazing house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. guests tonight were brought together by their mutual love of baseball. Well, urinals, Hall of Fame inductions, and baseball. Steve Wynn and Scott McCoy met in the bathroom of a Seattle club in the early 90s, and they got to talking about what it would be like to make a band that wrote songs about baseball. But the idea didn't really come to a head until the pre-party for R.E.M.'s induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, There was just enough booze at that party to make the band really happen. And they soon found themselves in the studio with Linda Pittman and Peter Buck, and a band was born. Please welcome the Baseball Project to Live World. When Campa Campaneras played all nine positions in a game. Rose demolished Ray and Fossey, he was never the same. Then one wins in an album on Capitol for Danny McLean. So long ago, so long past time, are you past your prime? The Tomashio, Shoeless Joe, Minnie Minogue. 
so Yola Tango Luisa Mauricio and Nelly Fox made the socks go go The sideburns of Peppertone and Oscar Gamble's afro So long ago, so long past time Are you past your pride? So long ago, so long past time, are you past your pride? One thing you can say about time is that it always passes. One thing you can say about the game is that it's not getting any faster. You can get tangled up in a ball of rubber bands and twine The cow hide pine toss snuff spin and chalk dust lines Two round trippers and a no-hitter that's Rick Wise Not Bobby Wise So long ago, so long past time Are you past your prime? So long ago, so long past time, are you past your prime? So I would like to I would like to get a little bit more on how this idea the concept album came together. It can't just have been. I mean, how much alcohol was involved? Mass quantities. Mass quantities. And when did it go from this would be a really cool idea to actually starting to write the songs and get the band together? Sometime after the hangover. Sometime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. That's almost uh, that's almost your standard answer. Yes. yes. For any question I ask you, you can answer. That's much right after the hangover. No, so, I mean, once we found the partners in crime and we kind of said we were going to do it, then you couldn't back out of it. Yeah, now, exactly. How does that happen? Is there kind of a Craigslist for rock stars and you just posted, like, who else is a rock star who always dreamed of writing about baseball songs? Seriously, is there, like, a club that we don't know about? Of How did that happen? How did you well, find one another? Both, both Scott and I had, had been thinking about it for a long time, doing a record about baseball. We, we just hadn't gone through with it. I, and, and once we both realized that night that we both wanted to do that, we figured either we could race each other to the finish line, get it done before the other one, or do it together. We chose that way. That's right. It was like, it was, or just keep talking about it for another 10 years and not do anything. That's <laughs> what would have happened otherwise. <laughs> so I'm curious if any of you actually wanted to be baseball players when you were younger. Was that a dream? Yeah, baseball player, fireman, yeah, but you know, <laughs> honestly, when the Beatles came around, that just disappeared the baseball thing from my mind, so I was six and kind of had a more realistic job in mind, being a musician. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I was thinking about the unspoken similarities between musicians and, and baseball players. There's incre- it's incredibly competitive. It's hard to get to the big leagues in either of them. Uh, a tremendous amount of travel. You have to do a lot of Pu- you know, performing in public, and also uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah, a lot of steroids, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I wasn't thinking so much steroids in the music. We don't get tested. <laughs> That's true. We're okay. True. Um, how did you guys figure out uh, who was which baseball stars? Because the album is fantastic, and it's really almost like a... You really learn a lot about the history of baseball if you actually listen to the lyrics. 
were you guys each, did you each decide, did somebody say, oh, I want to write about, you know, I want to write about Kurt Flood, I want to write about this star, that star, how did that happen? We both said, I want to write about Kurt Flood, <laughs> and we both wrote songs, but Steve's was way better than mine, were you, were so you, we did that one. Will you explain a little bit about why Kurt Flood is such an important figure, because I'm just going to imagine that, say, 100% of the audience doesn't know who Kurt Flood is. <laughs> is that true? Yeah. Okay, some, yes, no. I mean, the, the world, I mean, there's a reason why... I want to write a song about because probably probably one of the most important baseball players of all all time. Mostly because he brought on through things he did the um, free agency. He he challenged the idea that a team could hold the you know, could keep have the rights to one player for his entire career. And in the process, he didn't succeed in turning, um, overturning that, but put things in motion. His career was over. He was kind of essentially blackballed, and and mm-hmm. um, and and it ended a really great career. But five years later, everybody was you know, out there getting tons of money that he should have gotten. So he didn't get the money, and he died an early death, but he got the song out of it. That's right. And you guys actually... <laughs> so, you know, it's all fair. I love that about the album, though, that you really rescue from potential obscurity a lot of really important baseball figures. I'm thinking of uh, the, the baseball pitcher who pitched, what, 13 innings of per- perfect baseball, or 12 innings of per- perfect baseball. Well, at this point right now, only only 19 pitchers have ever thrown a perfect game. He was, and he did at a time I think only seven or eight had done that. And that's perfect game is basically you 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 get out every player you face, 27 up, 27 down. He did it for nine innings, and then 10 innings, and then 11 and 12, and got beaten the 13th. So in a way, it's kind of like you know that he lost his chance to immortality again, except for having a song on the baseball project record. That's we are we are restoring dignity to all people who should, who should have it now. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, I also want to know if, if there is a sort of equivalent for musicians of what would what would the equivalent of the perfect game be? Is there a perfect game in musical terms? Well, the great thing about this is that there's no way to be perfect, and there's no even to try. So just be. That's all it is. Just be. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Buck's uh, new self-help memoir. <laughs> It's not even entitled Let It Be. It's been edited down. It's just B. <laughs> well, thanks to the Baseball Project, you, they're going to come back later and play us another song? Yes, we, we, we certainly will. All right, awesome. Uh, the Baseball Project. The Baseball Project and Steve Almond. Class up. Hi. What do we study here? The, the way, way of the fist, fist, Sensei. And what is that way? Strike first, strike, strike hard, no mercy, sir. I can't hear you. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. Pain does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, Sensei. Fear does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, Sensei. Does mojo exist in this dojo? Um, I just wanted to see how that one sounded. Don't answer that. Courage does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, Sensei! Courage does exist in this dojo. I was testing you, class. You have to listen. Sorry. Sorry, Sensei. Sorry, Sorry, Sensei. Okay. Spirit does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, No, Sensei! I don't know, guys, because I swear, I saw this creepy little Asian girl in a white dress the other day. It was like I saw her... But then I didn't. It was really weird. She had these cold black eyes that totally tripped me out. If you see her, let me know because I have my flip phone ready to go. Okay, where was I? Um, oh, yeah. Weakness does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, Sensei! The owner of a white Chevy LeBaron does not exist in this dojo. You left your lights on if, if oh, you do exist. Damn it. I'll be right back, Sensei. All right, Brad. Okay, regret does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, Sensei! <sighs> I don't know, guys, because sometimes after class, I kind of wonder if I'm doing the right thing with my life, you know? Like, is this it for me? <laughs> I just don't know anymore. I uh, don't know. Good question, Sensei. No, Sensei. I mean, karate has been my life for 20 years, but I often think, 
What about horticulture? What if I had applied that same energy to making a, a really cool rock garden, like with waterfalls and crap? I mean, who knows, right? I, I don't know, uh, yes. And what does exist mean, anyway? If pain does not exist in this dojo, can it exist other places but then transfer over here? Is there a set amount of pain in the world? And by not existing here, maybe we're burdening another dojo with that pain. I, this is what I got a karate with every day. And what about me? Do I exist? If you punch me, will I feel it? Or is it just an illusion brought on by my subconscious and there, there really isn't anything here? There never was. Maybe we're all just figments of one another's imagination and the concept of reality is a fallacy. Do dreams exist? Is this a dream? No sense! It's a rhetorical question. <sighs> Are we existing in some simulacrum of normalcy? I just don't know. Are you there, God? It's me, Sensei. Uh... Sensei? What is it, Johnny? Well, sir, if there's one thing I know, it's that second-guessing choices you made 20 years ago won't help anything. Look, I may just be a blonde, preppy, SOB prick of a bully who knows karate and occasionally beats up the new kid at school. Right. But if I'm not the guy to play that role, then what good am I? Mm. And if you aren't the guy to walk around in a black, sleeveless gi hollering this brainwashing nonsense, who is? There's not a lot of adults in our life that encourage us to pick on the weak, show no mercy, and kick the back of someone's knee so viciously that it jeopardizes our own humanity, but you do. Mm. And even though this is going to sound kind of pansy, we love you for it. You know what, Johnny? You have a lot of wisdom for someone so young. I learned it from my master. Oh, good Jesus. Does forgiveness exist in this dojo? Yes. Yes, yes Sensei. Sensei. Uh, uh-huh. I don't know. <sighs> You're right, class. It does. And I'm sorry I doubted myself. Come here, guys. Group hug. Get over here. Even you. Come on. Group hug, guys. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh. oh, you guys know just what to say. And my Blackberry doesn't exist in this dojo, does it? Because I thought it was in the car, and I hope it's here, because I have looked everywhere. Listening to Live Wire Radio, offering up comedy, music, and conversation in deliciously digestible bursts. Coming up, essayist Stacy Bolt, Representative Earl Blumenauer, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back after this brief break. Welcome back to Livewire. You can find the musings of our next guest on her blog, These Things Happen, in Portland Monthly and Imbibe Magazine. But to our fans, she's mostly known as that woman who wrote that thing about marrying nerds. Seriously, it's sweeping the nation. Someone recently read it at a nerd wedding. Tonight, she's going to be making an admission that may or may not uh, allow her to be president of the United States. Please welcome Stacy Bolt to Livewire. From a long line of eye rollers. Rather than say what we're thinking, we bolts prefer to roll our eyes and walk out of the room. Announcements, big and small, all got the same response in my house. I can't find my retainer. I don't want to watch hee haw. I've been arrested for hitchhiking. Eye roll, exit, silence. I even got the eye roll when I told my parents I wanted to go to college. 
While other kids my age were getting pressured to apply, I was being actively discouraged by my father, the king of the eye rollers. College, he believed, was a waste of time and money. He was the president of a local steel manufacturing company, and he'd gotten there without the benefit of a college degree, or a high school diploma for that matter. And if he could do it, so could I. Eye roll, exit, silence. I was determined to go, even if I had to pay for it myself, partly because going to college was something that had the potential to irritate my father, which was always fun. I spent an entire decade worshiping the Dallas Cowboys simply because doing so made his face turn purple. (laughs) But mostly I wanted to go to college because college was somewhere else. And after spending 18 years amidst the strip malls and chain restaurants of Salem, Oregon, I was ready. Somewhere else turned out to be exactly 61 miles south of Salem in Eugene. (laughs) The University of Oregon was an affordable state school with a good writing program and a handful of high school friends to cling to. More importantly, Eugene was to Salem what San Francisco is to Salt Lake City. I traded the Brady Bunchoisee of my suburban home for a campus where the local color included a guy who wore nothing but tidy whiteies and a fur coat with Barbie dolls glued all over it. (laughs) Eventually, I even managed to get a bachelor's degree. The words eventually and managed are important here. Most people get their degree in four years. Some very driven people get it in three. For me, it took six years. Because as I was about to discover... Everything takes longer when you're stoned. (laughs) I wasn't much of a partier in high school. I'd copped a buzz off peach wine coolers and taken some puffs from clove cigarettes. I once sat on a friend's waterbed and tried to smoke a joint, but I coughed so hard I ended up getting seasick. (laughs) The desire was there, I just lacked the proper skill set. But that didn't matter, because I was headed to the University of Oregon. The Hogwarts of pot smoking. (laughs) Under the tutelage of the dorm-dwelling bong masters, I became a marijuana maven. If smoking pot had been offered as a class, and I think one could make the solid argument that it should be, I would have definitely gotten an A. By the end of my sophomore year, my GPA could have used it. That was the year I decided to rent a house with some friends. Two of us were named Stacy, and two were named Michelle. The other Stacy and I were both dating guys named Steve. (laughs) This made taking phone messages difficult under normal circumstances. Throw in a few bong hits and became a Cheech and Chong movie. We spent fall and winter terms of that year without the benefit of heat, thanks to Michelle One, who cranked it up on the first chilly night and never turned it back down, resulting in a $600 heating bill. We threw a fundraising party, which made about $35, which we promptly spent on weed and let the gas company turn off the heat. (laughs) Once a week, we'd make a huge bonfire out of empty pizza boxes and other combustible trash and then gather around the fireplace for four to seven minutes of intense, glorious heat. (laughs) It was on one of those nights, as we shared a bong and basked in the glow of our burning garbage, that we saw the police lights outside of our house. As the pulses of red and blue streaked across the water-stained ceiling, we looked at each other and understood. They've come for us. (laughs) Without any of us saying a word, we scattered like five-year-olds in a game of hide-and-seek. In the grips of pot-induced paranoia, we were utterly convinced that the Eugene Police Department had the budget, manpower, and will to take four college girls to jail for a fistful of stems. (laughs) In reality, it was just a guy getting a ticket in front of our house. Two hours later, as we slowly emerged from our hiding places, we looked for our stash. Michelle, too, said she'd hidden it, and we congratulated her for being proactive. No small feat when you're that stoned. But she couldn't remember where she'd put it, because she was that stoned. We didn't find it until the following spring, when the four of us were on the verge of flunking out. The University of Oregon is not an Ivy League school. It's not that hard to get in, and once you're there, the administration is perfectly happy to keep cashing your tuition checks for as long as you, your parents, or the bank issuing your student loans wants to keep writing them. 
It takes a special kind of dedication to get kicked out of a school like that. You have to really apply yourself. While we were living together, the other Stacy, first Michelle and I, were all taking the same 200-level economics course. Because all three of us were on financial aid and textbooks were expensive, we had the somewhat clever idea to buy one economics book and share it. That led to the much less clever idea to also share attendance to the class itself. <laughs> economics was three days a week. We were three students, so each of us was assigned a day to attend class and take notes which would be shared among the three of us, just like the book. You can probably see where this is going. In addition to making you fat, paranoid, and a bad decision maker, repeated use of marijuana can damage your short-term memory. <laughs> so simple pieces of information like Stacy Monday, the other Stacy Wednesday, first Michelle Friday, might as well be quantum string theory to the pot-addled brain. <laughs> no one went to class. No notes were taken. We lost the book. As I careened closer and closer to flunking out of a party school, my one consolation was the fact that my parents were clueless. After all the eye rolls my dad and I had exchanged, I didn't really want to have to admit failure. So when the notice from the dean's office finally came, I covered it up with a crazy quilt of lies, half-truths, and movie-of-the-week plot lines. College, I told my parents, was really hard. Lie. And I found that the social and emotional pressures of attending a big university were just too much for my fragile psyche to handle. Lifetime movie starring Tiffany Amber Thiessen. <laughs> so I decided to take a step back and attend community college for a year. Half truth. That was my only option for getting reinstated. So I did my time at the community college and brought my grades back up. This was easy to do because A, I had nowhere to go but up. B, I had moved out of Miss Mary Jane's home for wayward girls. <laughs> And see, I moved in with a bulimic theater major. This girl was so deeply unhinged that I was more than happy to lock myself in my room and study for days if it meant not having to hold her hair back while she yacked up celery. <laughs> By the time they let me back into U of O, everyone I knew had either graduated or dropped out, and that was a good thing, because the absence of a social life translated into something that looked suspiciously like a work ethic. Once I started actually going to class, I got mostly A's and B's and eventually managed to graduate with a major in journalism and a minor in art history. You know, so I'd have something to fall back on. <laughs> Despite the amount of time I wasted in college, I still don't believe college was a waste of my time. I accomplished what I set out to do. I got the hell out of Salem, Oregon. And I really do think there's some value in spending at least a small part of your life acting like a complete moron. If nothing else, it prepared me well for a career in advertising. Even so, I never told my parents the truth about my college years. And if my father were here to listen to this story, the resulting eye roll would probably be violent enough to cause a seizure. But back then, when I finally walked across the stage and got my diploma, he was kind of proud. I know, because he wrote it in the card. I'm kind of proud. <laughs> P.S. Never move back home. And I never did. Thank you. Stacy Bolt. to Livewire, the radio variety show that loves you for all your quirks, but it's your short attention span we love best. Coming up, Earl Blumenauer, more from the Baseball Project, and poet Scott Poole. So about a year ago, Shelley McClendon of the Liberators Improv Troupe was watching Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze for the millionth time on cable, and thought to herself, what is it that keeps bringing me back to this? It was then that she thought that if she couldn't stay away, maybe no one else could. And she decided to adapt it for the stage and called upon some of her comedy compatriots to help her, some of whom work on this show. What resulted was Roadhouse, colon, the play, exclamation point. A stage play complete with narration and a few original songs. So now we're going to present to you a snippet of Roadhouse, the play, 
Uh, and to do that, we have Shelley McClendon as Doc, Sean McGrath as Dalton, Pachanowski will be doing sound effects for us tonight, and I'll be playing the role of the narrator. Now, for those of you who haven't seen Roadhouse a thousand times, here's where we are in the play. Dalton, a ruggedly handsome bouncer with hair like a lion, has been brought to the seedy double-deuce bar near Kansas City to clean up the place. He's working on it, but he's just experienced a little bit of a pushback in the form of a knife battle with a disgruntled former employee. Now he has a gash in his side that needs medical attention. Scene 9. An examining room at Jasper Community Hospital. Dalton is shirtless, waiting to be examined. Dr. Elizabeth Clay enters the room. She doesn't seem like she'd be a doctor. She seems like someone who would work at the Limited. (laughs) Dalton can't take his eyes off of her. He's smitten. Hi, I'm Dr. Clay. Hi. So how'd this happen? Natural causes. Looks like a knife wound. Like I said. Dalton hands her his medical records. Oh, you're a bouncer. Mm Mm-hmm, double deuce. Oh, nice place. They send a lot of business my way. I'm hoping to change that. All by yourself? Well, Mr. Dalton, you may add nine staples to your dossier of broken bones, two bullet wounds, and four steel screws. That's just an estimate, of course. I'll give you a local. No, thank you. Do you enjoy pain? Pain don't hurt. Most of my patients would disagree with you, but okay. Dalton puts his arm over his head, and Dr. Clay puts down the shot and picks up the staple gun. Do you uh, always carry your medical records with you? Saves time. Your file says you have a degree from NYU. What in? Philosophy. Oh. Any particular discipline? Man's... Search for faith, that sort of crap. (laughs) (laughs) Come up with any answers? Not too many. How's a guy like you become a bouncer? Just lucky, I guess. (laughs) Did you ever win a fight? Nobody ever wins a fight. Totally intense eye contact. This is weird Cause I don't feel love This is weird Cause I'm shut down It's just that When you were stapling me I felt in this area that we're standing in <laughs> when you staple in me Besides the pain Are okay You should have taken the local I recommended I told you that pain don't hurt There you go Dr. Clay finishes stapling and reluctantly lets go of Dalton's sinewy torso Dalton goes to leave Uh, Listen, if you'd I'd like to come by the Double Deuce sometime. I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. You know, if you... Uh... Happen to be in the neighborhood, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for that line of work, I thought you'd be bigger. It's funny. I never heard that before. When you're stapling me Pachanowski on sound effects. Thanks so much, Shelley McClendon. Our next guest has spent most of his life in public service. He was elected to the Oregon legislature in 1972, 
He served for 10 years as Portland's Commissioner of Public Works, helping to turn it into one of the country's most livable cities. He was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1996, and since then has been one of Congress's strongest voices for livable communities, sustainability, and finding alternatives to fossil fuels. And there's a lot to talk about in that department since the recent spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Please welcome the Vice Chair of the Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, U.S. Representative Earl Blumenauer. show, Earl. Glad to be back with you again. It's fun. Well, you're kind of, you're sort of, you're known for your bow ties, but tonight you're actually, you're wearing a pretty swanky biking shirt. Yes. It looks like a tuxedo. Yes. And it has a bow tie on trying it. Trying to kiss it up just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah, you look great. Well, and it's, it's because it's the day after National Ride Your Bike to Work Day, which it I would imagine indeed. you did. I did. I did. And speaking of that, um, when you started in, in D.C., there were significantly less people riding bikes there. And it's not a big bike town, right? It's getting there. It's getting there. But just, just recently, uh, in fact, wasn't it yesterday that you rode for the first time? There's a bike lane on Pennsylvania Avenue? Mayor Fenty and I rode up America's arguably most famous street uh, on bike lanes right through the middle. Took us a year to get them, but they're there. And I think a pretty powerful signal about where we're coming with cycling. It's not just Portland anymore. Nice. Congratulations. Um, I wanted to talk just briefly about, because um, I'm not sure that people in, in Oregon are, uh, are necessarily aware of the fact that um, back when, when, well, there's still contention over the health care bill, even though it's, it's passed already, but back when there was all of this, this contention, this, this death panel portion of the bill, this was no, actually... No, 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 there were no death panels. <laughs> exactly, there was help. no death panel portion, <laughs> but you had actually put in an end-of-life portion of right. this bill, and so it was actually your portion of the bill that... It's true. That I, was, I was trying to kill Grandma. And yeah. Sarah Palin, exactly. So just for, for people's... For, so that people know, what did this actually say? This, well, what they it grabbed said onto? is that the federal government that would pay to have uh, people on Medicare poked, prodded, intensive care, any test, any procedure, uh, that it would finally pay a medical professional to sit down and have a conversation with people about what was facing them, what their choices were, and to make sure that their wishes were observed. Um, some, somehow, Sarah Palin, in what I, I am pleased, was judged the political lie of the year. Oh, great. That's, that's... By PolitiFact, it's true. Uh, morphed that into death panels. Um, it, was, uh, it was really bizarre. Some of you may have read my little essay in the New York Times, my near-death panel experience, um, <laughs> where we sort of went through what happened over the course of the summer. It was, really, it was really bizarre and unfortunate. But the good news is, actually, it produced a backlash, we were able to keep it in the House bill, and the White House wanted us to be able to get it in the Senate bill. We couldn't quite do it because of the Senate's bizarre rules. Of course, we think the Senate is kind of a big hospice for good House legislation anyway. Um, uh, but uh, we're, we're going to get it. little uh, rivalry going uh, on there. Well, rivalry, my Lord. We've got 290 bills over there. It's just, Ron, Jeff, come on, big guys. <laughs> Bring it home. Right, right. Well, let's, let's talk about this BP spill um, that's, that's recently happened. In terms of helping to clean this thing up, where does the responsibility lie? Does, it, does, does 100% of it lie with BP, or does, does some of it lie with the government? Well, uh, part of what was just mind-numbing was what happened to the people that were charged with overseeing the industry. The MMS, the Marine Minerals Service I mean, this is a place where the regulators, some people may remember, were literally in bed with the industry. I mean, the stories about uh, drugs and sex and stuff, it was just bizarre. Uh, and they did not do a good job. But uh, the primary responsibility is going to be, uh, first and foremost, with the industry and the companies that were involved. 
Um, it's, it is a very frustrating that all this time and energy has been spent on new technology to be able to drill down uh, more than a mile, uh, to be able to extract oil from places that we never thought we could. But the technology for cleanup is exactly the same as what we had in Santa Barbara 40 years ago with this spill that inspired the first Earth Day. And that's just got to change. Definitely. Is it, I mean, if you had your druthers, would you, would you put more money into finding that, that kind of technology, or would you... Well, I mean, first and foremost, uh, industries that are involved with extracting resources need to be accountable for the consequences, whether it's mining, uh, and we're seeing that play out, uh, or uh, offshore drilling. Uh, my personal preference is that we would spend more resources on conservation, on alternative energy, on helping us reduce our carbon footprint, because that ultimately is what's going to save the planet. And whether we get it offshore or we get it from the Arctic or we get it from Saudi Arabia, uh, we are still depleting a resource, we are polluting the air, and we are increasing the carbon uptake, which is going to have disastrous consequences for us all. We've got to bend the curve uh, to a more sustainable future. So you actually have some specific things that you're looking at doing in order to avoid a spill like this happening again. What are some of those things? Well, first and foremost, we need to blow the whistle and not approve any more uh, offshore oil leases till we get this right. I mean, just stop. Um, the, we're not in a position to drill baby drill. Uh, second, we need to change the liability levels, which we will, to make sure that the people who are profiting from extracting it are on the hook for all of the attendant costs. What's the current liability levels for it's those like, companies? It's like $75 million. It's insane. Uh, third... This, how much do you think this bill is going to cost to clean uh, we up? Have, we have no idea. It is going to be... I, before we're through, it is going to be in the billions. Um, and some of it is going to be... Ex, it's going to be extraordinarily uh, difficult to put a cost on the destruction of an ecosystem, for example, uh, off the, the coast of Louisiana. Third, uh, we need to make sure that the dispersants that they use, it's, it, this is, again, something that I don't think anybody in Congress was aware of, um, but the, the dispersing agent that they use is, is one of the least effective and most toxic. Um, and so blowing a whistle on that to be able to uh, make sure that when you're using these agents, you are, are not actually accelerating the ecological destruction. I mean, these are fundamental things that need to be done. I'm pleased that the administration is going to split off the MMS to uh, have hopefully two functional agencies instead of one dysfunctional. But there are a series of these things that need to go on. But as we started from the outset, um, it really is past time for us to change our attitude regarding energy in this country so that we are not just trying to continue to suck the earth dry, pollute the, uh, the atmosphere, and cook the planet. So what are some of the things... Uh, you have an energy bill that you're talking about sponsoring. What are, what are some of the things that you believe are going to make an immediate difference? Well, uh, we just passed some legislation uh, to increase the uh, appliance standards in terms of their efficiency, uh, making sure that the federal government doesn't build, buy, lease anything, any building that isn't uh, LEED certified with a twist. Um, uh, we're the largest landlord uh, in the country. We ought to lead by example, and uh, the administration is moving in this direction. We need to ramp it up. Half the buildings uh, in the United States in 2050 haven't yet been built we need to make sure that they are built right. And part of it is what we do here in Portland, where we give people choices about how they move. You can take a streetcar, you can take max, bus, bike, God forbid, walk. Uh, it's not illegal to live near where you work and play. Um, it's why Portlanders already drive 20% less than the national average, which uh, means that we are well on our way to being Kyoto compliant uh, and the average Portlander has about $2,500 a year in his or her pocket to spend that they're not 
shipping over to Saudi Arabia or, or to Japan or Germany or someplace else. Well, and there are some cities, uh, is it Amsterdam, that, that there's a tax? If you drive, you actually have to pay a Well, there are parts, of, parts of the world, uh, metropolitan London, uh, Singapore, where there are uh, congestion fees. Uh, most of the rest of the world has a higher gas tax. We haven't raised the gas tax in the United States since 1993, which is one of the reasons why our highway trust fund is uh, going bankrupt. So there are lots of things that we can do that are simple, common sense. We've done some of them here in the metropolitan area, uh, and they're the sorts of things that will make a huge difference in the years to come. And it's going to provide more economic opportunity while we move forward so we don't have to uh, deal with fuel-efficient cars uh, with uh, wind turbines and solar by purchasing them from foreign countries, doing it right here at home. Right, right. Well, we really appreciate everything you do. And thanks so much for being with us tonight. We hope you come back for only an hour. Radio, always in both broadcast and portable podcast form. Just visit livewireradio.org or iTunes for details. Stick with us, we'll be right back after this brief break. Welcome back to Livewire. And now it's time for the... Audience Haiku! We have given our audience three subjects on which to expound. Baseball, bouncers, and existential crises. Bases for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites, and they will now read them with help of Mr. Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their popular Ranger IPA, now in bottles and draft. New Belgium sent their beer rangers all across the country to see what people wanted, and what they kept hearing was, can you create a beer that makes me invisible so I can sneak onto the next space shuttle? And when they said no, probably not, the next thing they kept hearing was, oh, then more hops would be nice. So now you have Ranger IPA from the good folks at New Belgium. Thanks, New Belgium. Let's hear audience haiku. Hey, Ralph, can I get some uh, drum and bass, kind of heavy beat club, heavy club, kind of places you go? Sure. Apologies, sir. We're filled to capacity. Ladies, come on in. Thank you, Nathan, my kind of guy. Ralph, could I get something that's kind of existential but slurry and maybe a little club in there too, all at the same time? I think I'm being drunk, rude, obnoxious, and kicked out. Therefore... Thanks, Julie. And now, from the audience to read his very own haiku, please welcome Trevor. Uh, could I get something uh, thoughtful and melancholy? 
The bar is dead quiet. My existence in question. I can only bounce me. That's heavy, Trevor. And happy birthday, Trevor. Great job, everybody on the audience. Haiku. And now, once again, please welcome the Baseball Project. May 26, 1959, in Milwaukee on the mound. Harvey Haddix of the Pirates was mowing them down. 27 up, 27 gone. Nine innings in the book, and not a man had got in on. Now in history, only 17 had pitched a perfect game. A most exclusive club, and a most exalted fame. But for nine innings on that very day, the Pirates hadn't scored a perfect game, and still old Harvey had to pitch some more. David Wells, David Cohn, Sandy Koufax, Cy Young, Jim Bunning, Tom Browning, Charlie Robertson, Don Larson in the series in 1956. Why don't we add old Harvey to that list? Tenth inning down, eleventh inning down, they moved on to the twelfth. Three straight outs and the fans, they were pinching themselves. The best game ever pitched and still a scoreless tie. Poor Harvey had to carry on and give it one more try. Thirteenth's never lucky, so you can guess the rest. Harv gave up a hit, and then he lost the whole contest. I wonder how he slept that night, knowing how close he came to a most exclusive club that should include his name. David Wells, David Cohn, Randy Johnson, Eddie Joss, Candy Rogers, Mike Witt, Dennis Martinez, Don Larson in the series in 1956. Why don't we add old Harvey to that list? All right, Scott. Search for perfection is a funny thing, at least as I've been told. It drives you nuts, it makes you curse, and it eats away your soul. Sometimes better isn't better, sometimes justice just ain't served. Sometimes legend isn't laid where it's most deserved. But humanity is flawed, as the losers will attest. We're drawn to tragic stories They're the ones that suit us best But for nightings on that very day Oh, Harvey was a god A perfect game, if nothing else Because perfection's always flawed David Wells, David Cohn Lee Richmond, Monty Ward Len Barker against the Jays And Catfish for the A's Why don't we add old Harvey to that list? 
project. And now, as promised, he's been working feverishly for the last hour while you've been sitting, enjoying the show. Please welcome Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. At school, when I was in fifth grade P.E. baseball, all the cool kids got to play the infield positions, and then they sent the rest of us out into the outfield. So there would be six infield positions and 120 pissed and whiny outfielders. (laughs) The thing about elementary school baseball is that no kid can hit into the outfield, so we knew no ball would grace our area. So essentially, the outfield became a melee of kids kicking each other's asses. So there'd be two games going on, a rather boring baseball game and a full-out third-world Way of the Fist street riot like a Jackie Chan movie, a fast-forward with midget actors involving blood, tears, and you booger cat butt poop on the playground, pee-smell person, stop hating me, shouts. If only we had had weed. Like Stacy Bolt suggests. There would have been two distinct games, a baseball game for the six cool kids in the school and a Grateful Dead concert of giggling midgets. (laughs) If anyone had asked us if we actually wanted to play, we would have said, What? My broom is broken. I'm not ready to fly after the snitch, governor. (laughs) Then we'd roll around on the ground laughing at them. And while we were stoned, it would have been great if we all knew every line from the 80s stinker roadhouse. Dalton would come in from the left, Dr. Elizabeth Clay from the right, and we would all raise our hands with red swing lines. They would go, left, right arm, and we would go, left, right arm, and they would go, shimmy, shimmy, head swing, and we would all go down on one knee and go, yeah! (laughs) And if only Earl Blumenauer had been there at that moment to ride up in the middle of this joyous chorus on his bicycle with his bow tie and lead us in a bicycle tour off into a clean sunset and a beautiful future, those ineffectual hits by the freakishly coordinated fourth graders of the world might not have mattered so much. We might be joyous in the mere fact of living more, love each other, and a general peace would settle upon the earth. Or maybe that just would have been weird. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Poole. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for coming out. Our thanks tonight to our guests, Stacey Bolt, Steve Almond, Shelly McClendon, Earl Blumenauer, and The Baseball Project, Scott McCoy, Steve Wynn, Peter Buck, and Linda Pittman. The Mutton Shops were Ralph Huntley, Jonathan Newsom, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, Powell's Books, Tonkin Torque, Fitchin Associates, the Falcon Art Community, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, New Belgium Brewing Company, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brunberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Nalene Silva. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, and Sean McGrath. The former Laura Faye Smith and Siren of Sound, Pat Janowski. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management and lighting by Drew Flint. Theme by Courtney Mondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Old Wives Tales. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our wardrobe stylist is Cami Gray. Learn to dress like us on camigray.com. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Publicity by Cassell Communications. For more information about Livewire or to download our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is Tyler Hughes. And it turns out there's another Tyler Hughes in the Radio Announcers Union, so I'm signing off with my new professional name, Shank Throbbing Shorts. Good night. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered? 
right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 